0: I love our healthcare system in this country. I'm a, I'm a member of it. I practice in it, but I also recognize that uh, you know we spend three and a half trillion dollars on healthcare, and we don't get in return what we should for that. We have dropping life expectancy three years in a row. We're 23rd in the world with regard to life expectancy, behind Cyprus and Chile and Costa Rica. They're all ahead of us. We're expected to drop even further over the next 20 years. So there must be places around the world where people are living happier, healthier, better lives than we are. And I wanna know what they're doing. I wanna know how they're doing it and to understand what really works, uh, prove it and and bring those stories back to the viewers.
1: That's Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and this is The Roll Podcast. I think we can all agree that Western medicine is a good thing, an extraordinary thing. The progress, the scientific advances that we've made when it comes to everything from the diagnosis, the treatment, and the curing of acute conditions, uh, previously thought incurable diseases, is absolutely staggering. But I also think that with these breakthroughs uh, comes a sort of arrogance. And arrogance that we have it all figured out, that systems and modalities that exist outside the very narrow rubric of our Western medicine paradigm are of no value, that they are archaic or anachronistic, outdated legacies of less developed cultures and minds. But is this always the case? or? Do lessons remain to be learned from taking an objective look at how other cultures approach health and well-being? My name is Rich Roll. This is my podcast. And today, I field that question with our guest. His name is Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Sanjay Gupta, MD. And uh, if that name sounds familiar, it's because it probably is. Uh, In addition to being a practicing neurosurgeon, Sanjay has habit of showing up on television screens around the world uh, as the multiple Emmy award-winning chief medical correspondent for CNN, something he's been doing for many years. And to answer this question, Sanjay travels around the world. He looks for people who live longer, live happier, live more functional lives than anyone else on the planet. Kind of like my buddy Dan Buettner did with all the work he's done with the Blue Zones but also a little bit different. And Sanjay pulled all of this together for this really cool CNN original series that aired recently called Chasing Life. Uh, It's really great. It's a must watch if you haven't seen it already. And it's just a part of what we're gonna cover with this man today. We're brought to you today by Momentus. from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com/richroll and use code RICHROLL10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, go That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Sanjay Gupta. Oh, he's a beautiful man of many talents, neurosurgeon, best-selling author, television show creator, investigative journalist, uh, war correspondent, husband, father. I mean, I don't know if there's anything this guy can't do. And if that's not enough, in 2009, President Barack Obama offered him the position of US Surgeon General, which uh, he declined. We talk about that today. And today we cover it all. We cover his origin story, his incredible career, uh, the importance of storytelling in journalism, what it was like to work in the White House, uh, what it was like covering conflict zones overseas, how he manages his work-life balance, uh, the current state of healthcare in America what he learned traveling the world to study health, happiness, and longevity, doing his Chasing Life show, and uh, the not-to-be-overstated incredible impact uh, that he has had on my own life. So I love this man. Sanjay is a friend. He is a mentor. He's somebody I've wanted to get on the show from the get-go, and I'm delighted to help share his story with you guys today. Uh, I do want to mention one final little weird thingy (laughs) I feel like I need to address, Uh, During the conversation about 55 minutes in or so, uh, right when I felt like we were finally just getting warmed up and hitting our stride, uh, Blake, my video guy, slips me this note (laughs) that I guess was from Sanjay's publicist that said Sanjay had a hard out and that I had five minutes to wrap up the whole thing. So needless to say, uh, this was news to me. I was pretty sure that I cleared a good two hour window for this conversation. So suddenly I found myself in, in a pickle, in a bit of a predicament, um, what to do in this moment. And I opted to just relent, which meant having to bring this whole thing to a rather inelegant close, uh, which was less than ideal. So there was just lots of stuff that I wanted to talk to him about that was left on the table, stuff that I planned to talk to him about that I just couldn't get to. And so that's why the whole thing might sound a little bit uh, awkward and rushed in the final minutes, which is kind of a bummer. Uh, one hour conversations aren't really what I do. Uh, but I do wanna make sure you know that none of this was Sanjay's fault. He was totally good to go as long as I wanted to talk. I don't think he had any idea about any of this. And the irony here is that I don't actually think there was a hard out. That's the odd thing. I'm pretty sure it was a publicist thing. uh, So I'm just gonna leave it at that. Uh, Nonetheless, like I said, Sanjay is awesome. I really do love this man and there's plenty here to enjoy. So that's it. This is me and the great Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Who came up with the three meals a day anyway? The food industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, the the vested interests, you just start channeling it further and further back. and. Yeah, I mean, you know, and then I think it got sustained by our own emotional needs, mm-hmm. you know, as a substitute for, our, you know, the comfort foods, so to speak.
1: And then it became entrenched conventional wisdom that breakfast is the most important meal of the day <laughs> forever. <laughs> and now that's sort of out the window. It's interesting how these things change, as they should, as we learn more, right?
0: Yeah, I, I um, and it's funny when you're, when you're a TV doc doing this stuff, because, you know, you always get accused of flip-flopping right that's mm-hmm. the thing one study today another study tomorrow and you can sort of see why people get a little annoyed by that and breakfast was a good example because i've always said that i think and i i think you and i even had this kind of conversation breakfast like a king right. lunch like a prince and dinner like a peasant you know front load your calories uh-huh. that made the most sense and um and there were studies that I read said, well, you will eat fewer calories then throughout the day. You won't have as many cravings, all this sort of stuff. You'll be more productive earlier in the day. And then the study comes out that says, actually, if you eat a big breakfast, you're not likely to lose weight. Uh-huh. And everybody's like, are you kidding me? And <laughs> like, first of all, they blame I based my me. my whole life <laughs> on this
1: idea. Yeah, and somehow
0: it's your fault. Right, exactly. But you know, the thing about it is that those studies are just really hard to do. Mm-hmm almost all of them they they count on people recalling their meals really well they count on people being honest about what they've eaten super unreliable super unreliable and then if you actually looked at the data the the difference in weight was about 1.6 pounds now it's not nothing but you know it's not you know sort of earth-shattering either Uh, but but the but the sort of binary response is breakfast no longer good Uh you know that that ends up being the headline and you know, if you if people want to dig just a just another layer under the surface, they get a more complete picture of things. So I still think breakfast is the most important meal. Yeah. You know. And
1: have you experimented with intermittent fasting?
0: Yeah. I, I, in fact I did, uh, Walter Longo's program mm-hmm. where I did the five days, and I ate the sort of you know the meal replacements, which I guess was probably under five hundred calories a day. And the one thing he said to me and. I experienced it was sort of by end of day two you think you're hungry day one end of day two I felt great uh-huh I actually felt like I probably had more energy than a guy who would just eaten 500 calories for the entire day and he says it's because all of a sudden your body is forced into this production of new stem cells right and it gives you this jolt of energy and I Anecdotally, I felt it. Right. How about on
1: day five, day six? How long did you do it for? You know,
0: I did. I did five days, and and I'll tell you. By day five, I sort of thought to myself. I had a a fleeting thought that if this was the rest of my life, I could probably do do it. it. Right. I could. I could do it. I'd probably have days where I splurge from time to time, but for the most part, eating you know a low calorie diet like that, um, I you know once I got past the first day
1: and a half. I found it not that not that challenging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. It's cool. I mean, I've been doing intermittent fasting where I just eat dinner. You mm-hmm. know, like I, and I I've kind of acclimated to that. Like even when I'm training, I find wow. that unless I'm training really hard, and it's not something I would recommend doing all the time, but to kind of tap into that once in a while, yeah, it's empowering too because you realize like I don't you don't have to be dependent on these things that you think you can't go more than a couple hours without.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: I always, people must ask you all the time, like, oh, you travel all the time. How do you, what do you do on airplanes? You're on airplanes constantly. It's like, well, at the most, you're looking, unless you're going intercontinental, you're looking at five or six hours. Right, right. It's not that big of a deal, really. True, Bring some nuts and some bananas or something like that. and you can get by
0: don't get sucked into the bad snacks and all that kind of stuff you won't you will regret that decision stay hydrated Mm -hmm. you know try and get some sleep you know the the, the basics sort of apply for for sure but i think that not not sort of saying well i deserve to to be able to break a bad break a habit and you know do something a cheat food or whatever you don't you don't necessarily deserve that you know that's Uh the thing just because you're traveling so i try and be good about it uh you know even if i'm on the road you're on the road all the time though aren't you yeah no i I, i'm on the road a lot uh in some ways i find that i can be more disciplined on the road i'm the only person that i'm accountable to on the road is me yeah when i'm home i have my wife and i have three kids and you know i gotta be a team player Mm -hmm. so you know if if a meal may involve something that i otherwise would not eat uh am I going to be obstinate and say, you know, I refuse to eat, you know, or make everyone else eat what I want to eat, you know? And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's living. Um, luckily, you know, my wife uh, who you've, you've met is, is she's interested in the same things that I am. And our kids have uh-huh. developed really good palates. We used to stick all kinds of food on their high chair tray when they were babies and let them just try different things. And I think they developed good
1: interesting palates as a result they like all all different foods yeah 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 well yeah that's good that's encouraging i mean it's hard to get kids eating healthy
0: yeah i know although like you've always said and you even you said it last night is that i think that our default position probably is to want to eat food out of the ground it's 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 very it's very natural mm-hmm. it's you know if left to our own devices and no no exposure to all the other things around us advertising and all these uh, other choices, we probably would eat, uh,
1: you know, as humans, a very specific way, which would be a good way to eat. But that exposure is a problem, and when you have kids, they are exposed to those things, and you're not always controlling their environment, and so it becomes a a bit of a dance, trying to guide that, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, It means a lot that you would take time out of your busy schedule to to sit with me. and there's just a couple things i want to say and you know publicly one is is that since i started this podcast you've been at the top of my list um, mm. as somebody i wanted to thank you have this conversation with and just to kind of create a little context um, you have played a massive role whether you're aware of it or not in my own personal story you know back in 2008 2009 when i started doing these ultra events and Trying to figure out how I was going to change my life, and having made certain progress in that regard, um, I was still, you know, practicing law and very yeah. unhappy in that. And trying to, you know, sort of read the tarot cards about what would come next. And you, unbeknownst to me, had taken an interest in my story and came out here. We did a story. I wrote a little blog post for yeah. CNN, and it really changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, oh. that was, you know, perhaps from your perspective, you know, just an interesting small gesture, but it was one that really kind of moved the tectonic plates on how I thought about what I do and the possibilities for what it could become. And you really catalyzed an energy in me and it have encouraged me from afar and sort of mentored me from afar um, to kind of blaze this path that I'm on. So I just wanted to thank you wow. for that and acknowledge that. Um, it's been super meaningful to me.
0: Rich, thank you, I mean, that's, that's. Um means a lot to me. I want to, we have these mics in front of us other than lean across the table and give you a hug. I, 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 that means a lot that you, that you you tell that story. And, you know, we don't know sometimes about, you know, how life's going to unfold or the people that we're going to meet. And I, I definitely felt like when we met and, and I was super inspired by your, your story, you know, just, just what you had overcome and, and I think we're all trying to overcome something, and even in my own life at the time, I was trying to overcome things. So mm-hmm. selfish in a way, because I draw off your energy. Um, but man, you, you've—I'm um, so proud of you, and I think everyone's so proud of you. And uh, looks at you as a beacon of inspiration when I'm when I'm working out and, I've, and I'm digging deep, and I feel like I cannot dig any deeper. I think of you. Wow, I think of Rich Roll. That. I think of that picture <laughs> on the cover of finding here? ultra, yeah. you know, <laughs> no, uh, seriously, you really, you you really are. I mean, and you, there's you, the majority of people that you've inspired are people you will never meet. You know, there's just all these people out there who, who you, you touch. And I mention your name. I say, I'm going to see you. And, you know, they, they, they mm. know you, they, they're inspired by you. You've, You've changed their lives, so I, I
1: appreciate that I've done something small for you because you've done so so much for so many people. Well, I appreciate that, um, and and you're a big reason of you know why I started this podcast and kind of wanted to propagate and spread this message of health and yeah. wellness and longevity and fitness and all the things you know that we that we both love. Um, So let's get into it a little bit. I mean, the first, you know, you you have a really interesting story and trajectory of how you became, you know, I'm always interested in the superhero origin story. (laughs) Um, You do so many things in addition to being... The chief medical correspondent for CNN. I mean, you're doing docu series. You, you do 60. Are you still doing 60 Minutes? Right now, that's yeah. on hold. I got to, you right. know, you got to
0: make decisions in terms yeah. of writing.
1: <laughs> writing books and yeah. you had a television show for a while yeah. Monday mornings. Like, how do you balance all of this?
0: Um, I think you need to be realistic at any given time in terms of what you're you're taking on. Uh, you know, there's there's it's it's a full life, but I think for me all these various things fit together in some way i don't think of them as independent things i I think you know if you're if you're doing a lot of things in life no matter what what they are finding time to really figure out what the connective tissue is between these things makes a big difference Um, it makes it easier for you to organize your time to prioritize things to figure out how you can get Uh, multiple sort of use out of something, like if you're working on something and you think, well, that could also be beneficial to another project or to somebody else who's working on something to make sure that you're constantly collaborating that way and sharing. I mean, for me, you know, medicine and health and wellness has always been the common denominator. Mm -hmm. I continue to practice medicine, you know, which is my first and truest love that kind of pulls everything together. But the idea that you know, when I see patients in the office, ninety percent of them don't need an operation. They just need to be educated about something yeah. through television. We're sort of doing the same thing. You know, the the docu series to me was based on the realization that that when I teach people things, stories are what matter. Stories are what really force something into the brain, make it memorable, and make it more likely to be shared. So it's still teaching, it's still educating my patients or potential patients but just in different ways so I learned something one place I apply it somewhere else and it's busy but it's really good uh-huh. it's really
1: good how often are you practicing medicine what is that aspect of your schedule look you know like? on
0: on paper it's it's sort of like a 50/50 split I mean I operate every Monday uh-huh. every other Friday I see patients in the office on Thursdays I think people um, would
1: be really surprised to hear that I, I would imagine most people don't realize that you're actually still a practicing doctor yeah
0: I I know it's it's funny and it's it's, it's it's funny for me because that that is still very much how mm-hmm. i see myself you know i mean i i started thinking about medicine when i was 16 years old and i finished medical school 26 years ago now mm-hmm. and i've been practicing neurosurgery you know for for a good 20 years and so it's it's um it's a big part of my life and and i you know i think i see everything through that lens still um uh, through medicine through neuroscience through you know my interest in the brain and the spinal cord and all that but but i've in some ways kept those parts of my life a little separated i never wanted uh-huh. and the people at cnn are are so good at i operate on mondays they they know that they they, they leave me you. alone ronnie's you know. not like <laughs> <laughs> texting you ben is not yeah, <laughs> typically ben, not yeah. <laughs> 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 but um you know it's but it's it can be busy sometimes you'll get breaking news and things that uh, mm-hmm. But you know, they they all say and, and I say that you know obviously my hospital life and hospital world comes first. Right. And I'm, I see myself as a doctor first, and and luckily they see the world that way as well, and they're very respectful of it. So, eighteen years now I've been doing this, and it's wow. that sort of blended
1: life has sort of worked out. Yeah, yeah. So you grow up in Michigan, mm-hmm. a precocious, smart kid, born Lit- to Indian immigrants. Yeah. Very first, first gener- Your parents are first generation. First generation. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, mom was born in what is now Lahore, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. People know of maybe this partition that happened in forty-seven, led to the greatest, largest, I should say, human migration really in history, uh, all through South Asia. My mom was one of those people. As a five-year-old kid, who then lived as a refugee for the first wow. dozen or so years of her life. Uh, my dad was from Northern India. You know, they, they ended up meeting in the States, which is very unusual for, for people, for Indians who got married at that time. It was almost all arranged marriages. It's kind of a funny story. My mom is, is goes to school in Oklahoma. Uh-huh. She comes here to go to engineering school. She wants to become the first woman engineer in the automotive industry. So drives from Oklahoma to Detroit. That's, you know, that's where the cars are being made. And ironically enough, her car breaks down in Ann Arbor. So she's immigrant from the other side of the world on this, this mission to become the first woman engineer in the automotive industry. She has no friends, no money, broken down car. Uh-huh. And what do you do, right? You're in a strange town. So you go to the phone book. And you look for Indian-sounding <laughs> oh names. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was like, right? <laughs> uh-huh. So you go to an actual phone booth, and you pick up an actual phone book, and and you look up names. And so most common Indian name, Patel, right? So right. He goes and finds a Patel, calls Patel, it's just cold calls, cold calls. And but you know when you're when you're living in such a small, you know, community of people yeah. at that point, nothing's a cold call because everybody everybody is so they want to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. They want they want they're really invested in everyone's success. So calls this Patel guy, but he's not home. His roommate is, whose last name is Gupta. Wow. Mm, her future husband, That's amazing. my father.
1: So what is this, like late 50s, or this early is, 60s this or something?
0: Is, uh, no, it's, it's um, late 60s. It's 66, mm-hmm. 67, mm-hmm. that time frame. Right. And so they, they, they get married, and it's a, it's a love marriage, which is, again, it's all arranged marriages at that right. time, but a love marriage, you know unbelievable that it could happen, and it did. And uh, you know, so that was, what, 50, 51 years ago.
1: Yeah, you come out three years later, basically. They didn't waste any time. That was quicker than that, yeah. Oh, was it? (laughs) 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 It was a real love marriage. Uh (laughs) And did she become an engineer in the automotive industry? She
0: became an engineer in the automotive industry, and she was the first woman. Ever hired as an wow. as an engineer, which is which is kind of incredible, uh-huh. right? She she, for a woman who was a refugee on the other side of the world for the first twelve years of her life, sees some book about Henry Ford when she's in a library uh, sometime and says, that that's it, that's absolutely what I her. have to do. Hmm. And you know, there's this is India. I mean, the girls didn't even go to school, let alone go right. to college, go to grad school. Talk about becoming an engineer and. So she did. It. We're we're very proud of her, you know. That that
1: that was well, a, coming from being a refugee yeah. for 7 years, you said? 12. 12. Oh my word. 12 years and it's it's interesting. I I um
0: you know, she's the only person I I know obviously that lived uh-huh. that life and you know it's 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 interesting because her way of dealing with people, her way of navigating herself through situations, her way of not taking no for an answer, you know, just being so so uh, so steadfast and in, in how she approaches things mm. I think in some ways comes from her life as a refugee you know a little girl in a refugee camp you've got to figure things out and that's yeah. I think it's she's tough she's a tough lady if you met her you'd love her but you'd also see that you know mm. someone who's who's clearly been toughened by that but yeah she um she got the job as the first woman engineer and uh And, um, you know, this, I think in a lot of ways opened up that path
1: for a lot of other future women engineers. Yeah. So did that make her a taskmaster as a mother? Yeah. I would imagine very, uh, you know, sort of education focused, very, very education Uh, focused and very, um, you can't do
0: that. I'm sorry. Is that what you said? You can't do that. If I ever said, uh I I can't do that, mom, I'm sorry. I I don't understand. You can't do that. Or you won't you know it's just it was very it was there was always this sort of feeling like she never she never held it over us that let me show you what my life was like although we all knew the story but the idea that we would think of something as too challenging or too hard or Mm -hmm. you know whatever was probably never going to be an acceptable excuse for her so i can't was not something that was said yeah And, you know, my my dad's different. You know, my dad is much more easygoing, much more lackadaisical in this regard. So that was always an interesting tension as well Mm -hmm. in the house, you know, going to the dad instead of the mom for things. Knowing who to go to for what. Exactly.
1: So what kind of kid were you?
0: um, I grew up in a really small town, right? Very homogenous small town. The only Indian family living there. Very, um, very middle class, you know, sort of uh, a lot of people... Who are our neighbors? Um, also worked in the auto industry, but mostly uh-huh. on the line. You know, blue, more, more blue collar workers. My parents were young, really young when they had me, early 20s. So um, I, I was. I think it was a. It was a. It was a good childhood because my parents were were very invested in in me and you know my dad you know was a student of mathematics and taught mathematics and he wanted to spend a lot of time with me just teaching me things so it, it was good in that regard but it was a tough time I think as well being um you know uh, Indian living mm-hmm. in a in a town like that that where I it was the only person who looked like I did uh, you had
1: that sense of otherness
0: yeah that sense and it was everything right it was the, the type of name you had the food that you ate the the religion the cultural beliefs in the middle of it, the Iran hostage crisis happens and suddenly anyone who's right. darker skinned is, is, is really ostracized, you know, even, even people didn't make any distinctions. You, you were either, you know, American or you weren't. And so there was, there was that part of it. But, but I think overall, I think it was, it was, a, good, it was a good childhood. I mean, I, I, because of my parents, I was allowed to like yeah. think about things and dream about things. And my mom was a big dreamer, you know, so she encouraged that. When was the the doctor dream born? you know um it was it was it was interesting for me because neither one of my parents are physicians, like a lot of my friends who who went into medicine and who are my you know sort of medical colleagues now were sort of came from generational mm-hmm. families of doctors in some ways it was just that was their their fate, no matter what. Uh, my parents were not doctors, and and medicine, you know, going to medical school and all that was a pretty audacious thing in terms of cost and time and all that. So there wasn't like a lot of Indian families. I think you know we want our son or daughter to be a doctor. that was that wasn't necessarily the thinking in my house. Mm. My grandfather, uh, my my mom's father got sick uh, when I was young, twelve or thirteen years old, and um, was in the hospital. And I, you know, he and I were very close, so we spent a lot of time together. And I think it was the first time I really got exposed to hospitals and doctors, and and in this case, neurosurgeons, because of his, he had a stroke and he ended up having to have a procedure Uh to open up his artery, his carotid artery. And um, I think it was the first time that I started thinking about medicine. Um, I wasn't necessarily thinking about neurosurgery at that point, but just thinking about medicine as a career, like science. I like the idea that you could be a doctor in the healthcare world and help people as
1: a as a job. Yeah. I thought that sounded really interesting. So it was around that time and it sort of sort of grew from there. Right. Uh, you end up going to University of Michigan. Yeah. And you were part of the the Intiflex program, mm-hmm. right? Which Intiflex. is this this fast track to becoming a doctor. Yeah. they combined medical school and undergrad, right? Yeah. To get you like get your degree as quickly as possible. Yeah, you've done your homework. I, I, I know that. a couple so, other people that have done They've discontinued that program. They though, discontinued they? it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really So it was a program that was
0: basically designed to, to, to anticipate what they thought was going to be this, this primary care mm-hmm. doctor shortage in the United States. So they wanted to, to basically, from a young age, get people interested in, in primary care. And the way that they did that was they accepted you into medical school out of high school. Um, you just, you had to do two years of college and then you started your, your medical school classes. Right. So it was much shorter. Um, and my parents liked it because it was much cheaper. You're saving two years of tuition. Yeah. Um, but I think part of the reason that it got discontinued ultimately was that the idea that people would go into primary care fields only. Uh, It didn't, it just didn't necessarily pan out that way. You know, I went into neurosurgery, a specialized field, Mm -hmm. friends of mine went to ophthalmology or other, other specialized fields. So, but it was a great opportunity if you were certain you wanted to be a doctor. And I made that decision at 16 years old that I wanted to be a doctor, which is, you know, my kid's 13. I can't imagine her (laughs) making that decision. (laughs) Which is, you know, really not positioned. Yeah, I think was well, it Eric Erickson? I think you know the 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 evolutionary psychologist. He talks about the fact that really not until our mid thirties uh-huh. should we be making any important decisions about job, yeah.
1: about marriage, about whatever. You know, I mean, he, listen, I didn't start figuring it out until my mid forties, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I don't I don't know how somebody is supposed to know what they're uh, they're supposed to be doing at that age. It's crazy. I know, but our it, system is set up to for that. We're supposed to know.
0: Yeah, you 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 you. You need to develop that those decisions and have that inertia that sort of carries right. you in that direction early on. Otherwise, you feel like you're behind. You, yeah, you
1: missed the boat. Yeah. Your life is over. Right. It's never exactly. going to happen. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> so, the, the, so, where does that? Where do you begin your practice then? So, you know
0: the way the neurosurgery works after you finish uh med school you do you, you train and training for neurosurgery is seven years long mm. uh, so it's very it's the longest um, which again wasn't something that my parents appreciated too much because you're still going into debt during that time you're making some money but you still have a lot of debt from med school then i did a fellowship on top of that so it was like eight years long seven and a half eight years long um, and then I stayed on at the University of Michigan for a while. I had trained there, went and did my fellowship elsewhere, mm-hmm. came back and stayed on faculty there. And then uh, a few years after that, moved to Atlanta and
1: the Emory Clinic. And Emory Clinic has sort of been home for Where 18 years. Right. Yeah. So how does the whole media career begin? Does somebody knock on your door and say, hey, you got a face for television? <laughs> I or a like, for radio? How, how does, does this happen?
0: <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 really serendipitous, and and you know there's 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 no strategy here, and so like people, when I'm trying to give people advice on on blending their lives with something else, I have to remind them that sometimes you just gotta accept things that are serendipitous. So for me, I you know in the midst of this, when I was in my training, I got really interested in healthcare policy and writing mm-hmm. about it, and I worked at the White House for a while, mm-hmm. um, mostly writing about healthcare policy. Uh, working right. as a White House fellow. It's like early 2000s when you
1: were doing this that? This is late 90s, 97, oh, wow. 98.
0: Uh-huh. So um, Clinton administration. And, um, you know, as a White House fellow, and then very interested in healthcare, and wrote speeches on healthcare for First Lady and the President. And what's interesting is that there was a guy who was running CNN at the time named Tom Johnson who, who would oftentimes come around the White House. And there's sort of a porous border, I think, between public service, the White House work, and media. You Mm -hmm. see it a lot nowadays, right? People sort of going from White House work, then they're becoming analysts or pundits on television. It was happening back then as well, and, and Tom wanted to build a medical unit he that was his desire he he had been a newspaper guy at the la times ran the la times now was doing television knew that medical and health and wellness was just a really important thing that he didn't think was getting enough coverage he wanted to build a medical unit and this is in 97 he was mm. talking to me about this and i frankly didn't know what that meant it was it, there was no context for it you know there was occasionally medical reports on television but like an entire medical unit you know what would that do what would it be doing when it wasn't actively doing television, you uh-huh. know, all that sort of stuff, so I kind of, I kind of, um, you know, we kept in touch, but I didn't really understand what what that sort of work would entail. Four years later, five years later, I moved to Atlanta to, to take this job at the Emory Clinic, and I run into Tom physically, uh-huh. physically run into him in, in the airport. And he's this big guy, and he's got this booming, deep voice, you know. It's Andre Gupta, Tom Johnson. Good to see you. You remember me. You should come by CNN. And um, I said, sure. You know, I'm living here now. I'd love to see CNN. I'm a news junkie. And I I go to the CNN newsroom in Atlanta, and it just blew my mind. It was this amazing place where you get all these people in the middle of this newsroom who are basically taking in. Uh, whatever news is happening anywhere in the world and they're hearing it and they're trying to determine if it's something that should be reported and if it's going to be reported, how would they do it? Do they send people to go to the area where the news is happening and all this stuff, just curious people who somehow had their fingers on the pulse of the world's news. And I thought that'd be really interesting. Yeah. I'd to and, be a part of that.
1: And so prior to this, there was no sort of health department. At CNN that, of any formal nature,
0: right? It it, it there was there were people who sort of had niche interests in medical and health and wellness stories, and but not now you have an, an entire unit where that's that's what they they are medical producers and uh-huh. they work in this particular unit that is their that is the the types of stories that they're always interested in pursuing uh-huh. and looking at. So, it's it's totally different, I think, mm-hmm. in some ways because of Tom over the last twenty years. Right, so he says, "Come on board." You
1: say, "Okay," and then yeah,
0: (laughs) I mean, so so now just keep in mind the timing here is really interesting because it was August of two thousand and one, and and you know it's first term, first year of George W. Bush's presidency, and I'm a healthcare policy guy, right? Besides practicing neurosurgery, healthcare policy is kind of how he knows me from the White House stuff, and he's like, "You can talk about uh, you know the president's new healthcare plan because there was a healthcare plan back then as well." And then you know, not even a month, three and a half weeks after I started, nine eleven happens, yeah. and the world changes. You know, everybody's world changed, and my world, your world, everybody. And they said to me, "Hey, look, you know, we're probably not going to be doing health policy for a while on television. I mean, this is this is you know one of the the biggest stories in the world. What do you think about covering this story instead? You mm-hmm. know, being in New York, uh, doing doing reports on people who." Who, who didn't die but didn't really survive either you know sort of badly injured and mm-hmm. wounded in hospitals. there was the anthrax uh, attacks right. that October. Um, and then you know the, the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, which have been ongoing stories for my entire career here. And I was always interested in, in how people take care of each other in, in battlefield situations. So all of a sudden like within a month my, my world again everybody's world, but my world really right. really changed.
1: To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Yeah, so you think you're gonna be this talking head on- Yeah, (laughs) exactly. On political policy. Yeah. And then you end up becoming embedded over in Iraq, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, I watched the Gulf War on television in 91, and, and, i was riveted i remember i was in college and and i just remember the greenish screen on tv and seeing the bright lights and like is what is that is that those missiles going up or those Mm -hmm. bombs falling you know what am i looking at and but you knew that people were getting injured and that there were people who were rushing in to help them which i just i it it still gives me chills when i think about it you know just total strangers and you're going in and and risking your life to to help them um it just felt like the most human of all stories, and I was just curious how it even happened. Like, right. where were the the nurses and doctors stationed? How do they get in? What do they have with them? What sorts of injuries were they seeing? You know, all that stuff. So when you know um, the possibility of me going into Iraq as an embedded reporter with the First Marine Expeditionary Force and a group of doctors n- known as the Devil Docs, I I really wanted to go. I, I want to, yeah. you know, I. Never done anything like that before in my life, but I knew that that I wanted to be
1: there. And what was the reality of that experience in the context of what you imagined it to be, or what perhaps we think, you know, just Hmm. from seeing it on television? I think I think one of the uh, maybe not
0: surprising to people in the in the military world, but you know, as somebody who who lives a pretty fast paced life, what you find in in a in a conflict situation like that is that ninety 95% 95% of the time, it is it is just totally quiet. There's just nothing happening. You know, it's still, it's almost deafeningly quiet in the middle of the desert, and you, you're sitting there, and, you know, you pitch your tent, and it's, it's like sheer boredom, you know, and you end up having conversations with people and having these really deep conversations with people because, first of all, you have the time, and second of all, there's this sort of, Overlying veneer that something really bad could happen at any moment. You Mm -hmm. just don't know when and that kind of makes forces these deeper sort of conversations and relationships about things that you otherwise wouldn't talk about. And then you have this whiplash right going from just sheer boredom to to utter terror, you know, uh, back and forth. And I think that that that's, was one of the, the surprising things to me. I just imagined that it was always going to be sort of like hustle-bustle and constantly right. strategic, like you always knew where the enemy was and they knew where you were and, you know, you were constantly sort of strategizing. You know, like I think of Vietnam or Korea, like you fight a war across a line. Here it was hopscotching around the desert, nobody really knowing – for certain what was about to happen. You could be riding along on a Uh convoy ride on a beautiful day just staring at the sky and all of a sudden you come under fire and you think oh my god i could die you know uh, right now right. and and i was just fine looking at the sky a second
1: ago so things are like, like that. wait i'm a neurosurgeon <laughs> why am i not back at the hospital well, like, yeah. there's a surreal aspect of your life and your career there must be moments in which you're like how did i end up here yeah well and,
0: and no doubt um and and you and i think what's what's really important and i think it's true for anybody in any any field or anything that they do is you constantly have to remind yourself of why you're doing what you're doing you know i mean like covering a war and you know i got young kids at home and and my wife obviously uh you know there was times when when things were really looking pretty bleak when i thought god i am stupid you know right. i'm just stupid like, why I'm, am i doing this i'm gonna die out here and and then you know, you remind yourself that the stories that you tell and getting this this, this information out there is important. You mm-hmm. know, you, you've got to see it as important, otherwise you probably shouldn't do it because the, the, the price is too high to pay, you know, otherwise. So, and, and, and covering conflicts, I think, are a time when you really, really remind yourself of that. Like, I, I really understand the importance of what we do and why we do it. Yeah.
1: Well, there's also, an excitement to it and an energy to it. I mean, this mm-hmm. is something I've talked with Dan Harris about. Like, he he got so into it yeah. that he couldn't stop becoming, you know, going overseas and being involved in conflict to the point where it really eroded his health and he had you know, PTSD and all these issues yeah. as a result of that.
0: Yeah, and, 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 you know, and Dan's obviously a great example of yeah. someone who's been able to find Really effective ways to deal with that, but yeah, I think I think you there is an addictive quality to it. I mean, there is. A, I think it's probably physiologic, probably not different in some mm-hmm. ways than what you experience with all your your exercise. But you get that adrenaline rush, and it's 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 feels really good. I mean, you get these spikes of adrenaline where you're like, oh my god, like you right. know, it's, it's almost too much. And then when you come down from it it's like, it, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, appealing. You can see why people want that sort of feeling from time to time. Um, and I, you know, I definitely, definitely have that, you know, when we, in, uh, working in a place like CNN, when there is breaking news, when something big is breaking, there's nothing like it. Right. I mean, the entire company just comes together. It's galvanized and, uh, as, a, as a group that, I have not seen anything yeah, quite yeah, like yeah. that. So, and so I, 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 I see the allure to
1: it. I was in New York City, uh, I can't even remember why, um, but I went over to CNN to go see Ronnie, Yeah, who runs your unit. Uh, what's her official job title? What is her official job know. title now? It's just, executive it's producer, Executive yeah, producer. Executive, yes. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sitting with her and we're catching up and right as we're talking, the Boston Marathon bombing no. happened. So I was actually right with her when that occurred and I got to see the whole newsroom Jump into action and yeah. figure out like what's going on. How are we going to cover this? What do we know? What do we not know? It was, it was amazing.
0: It, it's it's you know I mean if there's things that sort of um, allow a organization to to click on all cylinders to really you know use their talents to the max. Uh, obviously a tragic situation, but in terms of breaking news. Um, CNN. When when that happens, it's it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, the closest thing I think would be when you're working in a trauma hospital and a and a a child comes in who's been the victim of trauma, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, you got people coming out of the woodwork who are just like there to help. People come in from home, and you know, it's just like everything. Everybody comes together and takes care of this, and it's the same sort of thing with a big story like that. And by the way, you've got a lot of a lot. You know, before we actually start broadcasting and on television there's so many moving parts there's the editorial judgment like what are we seeing here exactly what are we willing to say on television um you know our 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 families whose whose loved ones been affected do they know or are they going to hear about it first on tv you know how do we make sure that doesn't happen because you know people should should have the courtesy of
1: hearing these things uh, without the rest of the world hearing it at the same time, yeah. You know? Balancing uh, that responsibility against this increasing pressure to be first right. and to be fast—that's
0: right. And and you know, I mean, that that is a that's an interesting thing. As someone who came to television sort of more mid-career, I think if you if you grew up uh, with with the world of TV journalism, that becomes this really important metric. I need to beat the other guy by you know fifteen seconds, you uh-huh. know. I never saw the 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 real appeal of, in that because I felt like if you could wait the extra you know time and tell a much better, more complete story or picture, mm-hmm. um, it it was worth it. And I think in the medical unit we have the luxury of doing that. You know, we we, we there's there's absolutely no no benefit at all, at all for us being early and even possibly being wrong. Yeah. There's just no it's that's you know you, trust is the most important thing.
1: Yeah. So how do you think about CNN and its responsibility in this kind of culture of you know fake news and fast news and you know all the kind of epithets that are, <laughs> that get thrown around you know now I mean how do you process that or what are your thoughts on that It's
0: it's it's hard it's it's yeah. it's hard because. Um, you know, no one ever probably looks at anything in life and says, I have 100% confidence in this. I mean, there's what things in our life are our absolute honest brokers our true North stars, very few things. I mean, you know, um, uh, small businesses in your community, you know, mom and pop stores, those within the military, there are certain organizations that tend to be very, very high trust organizations, but just about everything else, government, media, even mainstream medicine, there's always a bit of suspicion or distrust. Mm -hmm. So anything that sort of opens up that, that, that crevasse even more, the president calling, you know, CNN fake news gives voice to, you know, people's sometimes totally unsubstantiated suspicions, but, but just gives it voice all of a sudden. So you, you know, it, it makes it hard. You, you, you have to, in some ways you don't do anything different than you normally do. You want to make sure that you're right, you're accurate, you're, uh, maintain that level of trust that relationship with the audience but yeah it's hard i think it's really hard probably for the political reporters because in right. in some ways it may even be dangerous for them because people um they get really angry and you know they they people's there's people who who you know who worry about their own physical safety as a result mm-hmm. of of these i think largely unfounded suspicions but it's so it's it's been challenging
1: yeah yeah, well it, the temperature is different than it was just a few years ago. And you know some of that 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 there there can be a healthy mistrust and that sort of puts the pressure on the media to yeah. maintain that level of integrity and honesty, but when it tips over into, you know, insanity world, uh, I would imagine it makes your job more difficult. But yeah, I mean you're not you know, overtly reporting on politics. You're, you know, you do breaking news around health, but most of what you do are these long form, mm. kind of heavily researched long tail stories.
0: Yeah, and and that's that's a that's that's a real luxury, certainly in our world of, of television, to be able to uh, to to really dig into topics, to have programming time long enough to be able to tell these stories, and you know, so you feel very lucky when you get to be able to do it. But yeah, you you you. You have everything really buttoned up. I mean, you you spend a, uh-huh. most of the time producing something like this. A, a long form medical story is is right. the research, is the background, uh, and then you know telling the story part of it comes very naturally. But we we you know the facts and the evidence and all that really kind of lead the way with these types of stories. I feel like I get to get a mini master's degree in you know thousand different
1: topics, which is which yeah. is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you're very deft at. Communicating. Your communication skills are amazing. And you have this. I sort of see you as somebody who is steeped in the science and has this, you know, history and experience in in medicine and all its facets. Uh, But you know how to take that information and translate it in a way that the everyday American can actually not only understand it, but like digest it and then implement it into some kind of tangible behavior change.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. Yeah, and it's hard. I, I mean,
1: you get a lot of scientists, like, they can't communicate with the public. Like, they don't, right. you know what I mean? So it doesn't matter what they're saying because it's not penetrating.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, it's it's interesting because I think um, there, there's sort of two aspects, I think, when it comes to health, medical science reporting. Part of it is, I think, just an intrigue. Like uh, people are interested in science as a general thing. Mm-hmm. I just want to understand the science of this. How would that work in the body? But the vast majority of people, when they hear these stories, they you immediately place yourself in that situation. How does this affect me, or how does this affect the people that I love? Mm-hmm. You know, this this new thing, and whether it be some new breakthrough in an immunotherapy drug for cancer, or breakfast isn't necessarily the most important meal of the day. Whatever it may be. Um, true, like truly, empathy takes on a different meaning here in the sense that I really want to put myself in the viewer or listener's position here. They're hearing this, and are they screaming at the TV, going, "Well, what does that mean?" Or, or, or wait, you said the exact opposite thing yesterday, or, or whatever they might be saying. Truly, sort of anticipating how they're going to react to something, and and you know, crafting a message that you think you would want to hear, you know, mm-hmm. something that would be uh, important to you or relevant to you in your life. So it's it's and, and there's times when you get scientific studies that are, you know, they're, they are scientific studies, they're in journals, you know, they're they've been peer reviewed, but they still lack a certain common sense to the way that the conclusions were drawn. Breakfast no longer important, because people on average, over a certain period of time weighed a pound and a half more you know let's mm-hmm. let's look into that study really do they how do they, how do they know what people ate Were people honest about what they ate you know to really look at data and also apply uh, a common sense filter to it which after doing this for you know 18 years and turning 50 this year you know at some point in life you figure like look, look I've earned the ability to to analyze this and not just regurgitate facts and data i i, I, I should be a, a not just an antenna that's receiving information and then putting it out there, I should be able to actually process this and make it a value in uh-huh. some way. It's not to adulterate it or add my own editorial spin to it as much as it is to make it um, accessible and relevant to viewers. Here's what I took away from the study. Here's why this is important. Uh, here's why it may not be as important as you think. Here's the headline you're gonna read tomorrow, but let me, let me give you a couple caveats on that headline You mm-hmm. know, as you, as you read this, uh, th- that, that sort of thing. Um, I think it's how I've looked at the world. So being able to apply it to to journalism, in
1: some ways, it was a very natural fit. Yeah, but you didn't go to journalism school. You went to medical school. Right. They don't they don't teach this skill in <laughs> medical school. Like, how did you learn? Did you have mentors at CNN that helped you learn this kind of craft of storytelling?
0: um Yeah, you know, you certainly learn from uh, you know. There's people who I work with in television that are I think just like. Ben Tinker, who's here, is just a natural mm-hmm. storyteller. You just got really great instincts on things in terms of what I'm talking about. Um, but I, but I do think there there are some parallels between medicine and media this way. My wife uh, Rebecca, who you know, and you, you um, uh, she loves to tell the story because uh, you know she, she ends up looking really good in it, which she should. Um, because, <laughs> but the I when I first started doing television you know, I, I, my natural speaking style it was not to be enunciating my words very clearly necessarily. And I stutter a lot and I pause for periods of time that are maybe longer than seems normal, you know, and things like that. And, and it was just my sort of speaking style. Um, she, she reminded me, like when I'm talking to patients in the clinic, you know, in the office, like, wh- what was it that I was trying to convey to these patients? First of all, um, they came in, in search of something, you know, so to really be empathetic to that, to, to not be dismissive of how people are approaching an issue or how they're thinking mm-hmm. about an issue. Two is that I really want them to understand what I'm saying. So I need to make sure that what I'm telling them is factual, but I got I to find language and find a way of communicating it that they're really going to understand it. And then to, you know, to, to take the time to, you know, if there's questions around it, to be able to really answer those questions. And in some ways, television is the same thing. The lens became the patient, in some ways. Mm. And I think that was a click moment for me when when she told me that. And for the first time, I could look at a lens and not be totally freaked out by it. Right. I mean, I would literally like look away from it, like I was in some sort of hostage, you know, yeah. protection program, <laughs> <the laughs> yeah, witness protection program. And and now I can you know try and make a better connection. I think than I used to be able to, and find the right words and and not stammer and stutter and, you know, have these weird pauses as much. Yeah.
1: What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. One of the things that that I've noticed with increasing regularity is the frequency with which um, a scientific paper or study will come out and there'll be a news cycle around it with crazy clickbait titles yeah. that have no bearing on what that study actually said and completely mischaracterize it, c- characterizes it to the extent that it's al- it is. it becomes fake news, right? Yeah. And this is what yes. generates interest. Uh, this kind of hyperbole, yeah, uh, and it's rampant and completely out of control. There's an irresponsibility out there with how we're reporting science and medicine.
0: Yeah, and I think with science and medicine, it, I think the stakes in the bar have to be even higher than than other things because people make decisions in their life, sure, based on this. Sometimes small decisions, sometimes big decisions, but always important decisions. I think that one thing is is um, There's a lot of you know, I'll call them fly by night organizations, organizations that aren't really interested in being around for the long haul. They come in, they they want to they create a lot of content quickly, Uh, they use clickbait headlines and their goal is to basically, you know, make make as much money as they can by Mm -hmm. generating a certain readership and viewership, but they, they don't they're not investing as much in the long term relationship with the consumer. Because the consumers read the articles at a company, a clickbait headline, and they say, well, wait, hang on a second. These don't match up. The headline and what you've put in the article don't match up. And after a while, you, it just becomes a violation of trust. And so, yeah. but it can last long enough, a couple of years, for companies to you know, have generated revenue, get acquired, do whatever, and then they're out. I mean, I think you know there is an advantage of working at a at a company that has been around for a long time has has an interest in being around for a much longer time, mm-hmm. because they they take the, the, the sacred relationship between you know the the producer of the content and the consumer, they 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 take that very seriously and um you know we, we you know we try and be careful about that I, I'm sure that there's examples you could point to at CNN.com of that exact thing but I, I would dare say I
1: think it's further and fewer between as Uh compared to other places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the good news is we've never seen more interest in health and wellness. I mean, this is really, you know, something that people are keen about in a way that didn't exist in prior generations or even a decade ago. Like people really want to know the kind of information that you're imparting. And I wonder, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I wonder whether Like, if I, you know, I'm sure I live in a silo, in a bubble, where, you know, I'm reading about all kinds of new wellness tactics and strategies and things like that. Um, But is this really, is this trend penetrating the mainstream in a meaningful way? You know, like, I saw somebody tweeted the other day, in my Twitter feed, I see people Arguing that we should only eat plants, and then other people arguing that we should only eat meat, the carnivores. But I go out in the world, and I just see people eating donuts. <laughs> you know? Right.
0: So it's definitely not penetrating that guy. Right? Yeah. Um, I think. I think. I think you. You sort of have said this, but this idea that that wellness has taken on a bit of an elitist sheen that mm. it's it's become sort of a, a a privilege of of the more wealthy or the people who have more resources. And I think there's probably some degree of truth to that, you know, to simply practice healthy behaviors for some reason, uh, seems like much more of a luxury, uh, rather than a than a necessity or a basic right for people. Um, I think that the first part where people are very interested in this is 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 true. Um, and that surprised me a bit, you know, you sort of, I've, I sort of imagined people would go get their Information about health and wellness, you know, from their mm-hmm. doctors or from their nurses, from from medical establishments. And when I started doing this work, I realized that there's a real appetite for this type of knowledge in other ways: so television, magazines, internet, and things like that. And keep in mind, this is 18 years ago that I started, so obviously now you see that. But 18 years ago, even there was a huge, huge appetite uh, uh, for right. medical content in these ways. But I think that um, I think that the the uh, the idea of of do I trust it, right? I, I think I think the, the going back to the suspicion thing, people will get this knowledge, but part of the reason it may not always penetrate is because. Do I trust it? Is someone just trying to make a buck off of me? Mm-hmm. Or are they are they? is there some vested interest that I'm missing here? Or if I'm looking up a new drug, is it just the pharma company? Or do I really trust the government's recommendations on diet? Whatever it might be, like who are, who are the honest brokers when it comes to health and wellness? Who are the people who I, I, I say, they have no other vested interest in other than giving me good, reliable knowledge that will help my life mm-hmm. in some way? And you know it's it's hard to find, and and what we see in the news cycle with what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry, and yeah. even with certain government guidelines, you know the 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 diet plans a change year to year. Uh, I think that just makes that sort of. Uh, that makes it worse. It makes it hard to find that honest
1: yeah. broker. Yeah, the same uh, the same trends that give rise to mistrust of the media, uh, you know, provide mistrust, create mistrust in the medical establishment in general. Yeah, the pharmaceutical industry. People are even questioning whether their doctors really know what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, sure. And of it, again, there's a seed of you know, a seed of that is healthy, but at the same time, in this internet world that we live in. Um, you know, this gives rise to the flat earthers and, you know, all kinds of crazy ideas. And it makes it difficult and challenging for the well-intentioned consumer to just find reliable information that, that's bankable.
0: Yeah, I, I, I and I, I'm curious, I don't know how you even approach this sort of thing. I mean, I have my own sort of strategies in terms of how I find my own, I'm calling them honest brokers just as a metaphor, but you know where where are the where are the places that really don't seem to have any sort of conflict right because mm-hmm. if you have conflict now look there there's no reason that a university shouldn't uh, be able to raise money to help fund their research labs and you know keep the keep the hospital you know afloat and all that sort of stuff but if 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 there's real conflicts here if you may now make a decision that you otherwise wouldn't have made or reach a conclusion that you otherwise would not have reached because of a financial relationship with with something or someone or whatever, that's obviously a problem. And if it happens yeah. once, I think the the trust is is totally totally violated. So um, it's it's hard to find. I mean, I I'm not, you know, I'd like to think that we in in the world of journalism get to do that. I feel like I've had a chance to do that because. I don't, you know, I don't take any money from anyone other than my employers, you know, I don't have any any conflicts whatsoever, which sometimes people find hard to believe. They just assume everyone has vested interests in some way. But I've been, you know, really really diligent about that because not only because it's I don't think it's right, but also because once it gets in your head space, I think it's very hard then to be objective on things. You know, if you feel yeah. like even in the back of your mind you may have some kind of conflict, I think it, it's really hard to be objective. But, but I think it's harder for people to find those honest brokers who are truly objective in their lives, and you know that, that makes
1: it challenging for this stuff to penetrate. So then, how do you vet your information sources?
0: It's so this is a it's a big process for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I it's um, first of all even reading a medical journal article. So you know, people will say, well, it's peer reviewed, it's a double blinded randomized control trial. Enough said, right? That's it. Um I I I think I have the ability now to to look at the stuff and and first of all look at the methods of a study really understand how they how they sort of progressed through this what were they what was their hypothesis in the first place did they have some sort of preordained you know sort of conclusion before they even started the study how did that influence the findings and and then to be able to take that and and analyze it myself uh-huh. so in some ways I'm taking existing knowledge but then applying you know two decades worth of analysis to it. Um, I think one of the best examples for me, and this is something where I, I I learned something personally, because I think I was wrong on this, was medicinal marijuana. Yeah. You know, it was it was not a, a um, thing that I thought had, you know, frankly, much merit when I first looked at it. But after I was able to look at existing studies and apply my own uh, my own analysis, my own common sense, um, my truly uh, unconflicted, you know objective uh, opinion and and thoughts on this, uh, I reached different conclusions. so so you know that that's just that's that's an example. Yeah, it's existing knowledge with with a healthy dose of of
1: homework analysis, and healthy skepticism, right? Well, the marijuana example was was, a big deal when it happened. And yeah. you kind of made this formal apology, mm. you know, said I, I had said these things in the past, but now after, you know, immersing myself in the science and, and learning about all of this, I've changed my mind. Yeah. And that made like headlines around the world, like, oh my goodness, like doctor changes his mind. Yeah, <laughs> his right mind. <laughs> doctor It goes changes back to mind. what we were talking about at the very outset of the conversation. It's like Science evolves. You learn as you go. And I worry about a culture in which we're not allowed to change our minds. Right. Yeah. I I,
0: uh, 100% agree with you. I mean, you know, what kind of world would that be where we just figure that we already know it all? Yeah. We're not going to learn anything new. I I will say with the the medical marijuana and cannabis in general, um, uh, with all due respect to the scientists that are out there, you know, really pounding the drums on this long before I changed my mind. I mean, for them, they look at me and they say, well, yeah, you know what? It wasn't that science evolved so much. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, the establishment, both medical, governmental, um, just bought into this idea that this was a substance that was uh, had was highly toxic, highly addictive, and had no medical benefit. And it was a Schedule One substance. And everyone, that's just the way it is. Uh-huh. And oftentimes people don't do do the extra digging. You know, a lot of the data that I ended up really looking at that that informed my new newly changed mind was data that existed. Um, it sometimes existed in labs outside the United States, existed in labs that were not federally funded. I mean, when you have a substance that is already, you know, preordained as having no medical benefit, it's very hard to do research on it. It's illegal. And the scientific community is already saying you know go look somewhere else Mm -hmm. there's nothing to see here uh and everyone bought into that
1: yeah so there's the cultural barriers and the cognitive bias that that's right prevents that realization from occurring
0: yeah and then you know by the way you, you you write something like i write where and i can't remember what the headline was but i think it was like why i changed my mind and i wrote this thing and you know uh I wasn't sure how it was going to be taken. And uh-huh. I wasn't sure how it was going to be taken by people who would read it as, a, as an op-ed piece, but I wasn't sure how it was going to be taken by my colleagues in medicine. And, you know, I work at an academic university, uh, how the deans and, you know, the, the, the leadership was going to take it. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a little nerve-wracking in that regard. In the end, I was comfortable with it because, you know, we spent a long time doing this research. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it was well cited and, you know, had all the all the sources for why I was saying what I was saying. But, you know, people could still say, hey, look, you became a guy who's endorsing an illegal substance that doesn't have any medical benefit. We're not sure that you should be ex practicing medicine anymore, B being a journalist uh-huh. anymore, or whatever. You know, so it was it was it was it was it was tough.
1: Yeah, you stuck your neck out. My my recollection of that moment was that it was a big media event, but it was something that was ultimately embraced. I'm sure you got some marginal blowback from some people, but overall, I think people were, you know, were kind of delighted yeah. that you were coming out in a very public way to say this.
0: I think so, you know, and, and I think um, people who were who were uh, knowledgeable about this topic but maybe had never really dug into the science now had this, this this article, you know, that had all these citations Mm -hmm. where you could spend a couple of hours reading this and looking at the sources and reading the studies and saying, wow, I kind of get it now. I understand why this could be medically beneficial. I understand what it does in the brain. I understand why it might help people with inflammatory bowel disease, with pain disorders, with epilepsy, whatever it might be. Like you could become knowledgeable about this. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just a emotional argument that people were making based on, you know, on, on sort of the reefer madness of the mid 30s or right. early 40s whenever that was so it it um and, and that was that was pretty pretty gratifying i got these calls from you know, some calls that i you know to this day stick with me from people in the medical world um who who say look you can't talk about me publicly but and, right. you know they're sort of revered people in that world who came out and said yeah I mean, I, I gave this to my father when he was suffering with with the side effects of chemotherapy, and it really helped him. Or I saw how this helped a, a kid with with refractory seizures, you know, who's mm-hmm. having 300 seizures a week. Uh, I got a call from a judge in New York, someone who had actually been responsible for putting people away, you know, for the real sort of you know criminal aspects of of marijuana and. Uh, who 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 recognized that maybe there had been people who had been taking it for medical reasons, who who had been you know treated as criminals, and the person was very upset and actually started weeping on the phone. Yeah. So the, it, wow. that some of that was pretty powerful. It didn't seem to follow any pr- particular political line, gender line, young old. I mean, everyone everyone in some ways had a story to tell, and mm-hmm. um, you know that was that was pretty amazing to me.
1: How do you make decisions about? the stories that you want to pursue um you know there's there's always the news
0: aspect of it so things that are in the news i think drive that that's the biggest driver of what we do you know things that are currently happening in the news and we'll look at opportunities to to educate people more about an issue because of something that's happening in the news so like when you know bill clinton had his heart operation right uh, people are very interested because he's president of the United States. Um, but here was an opportunity to educate people about heart disease, but also about a plant-based diet, something mm-hmm. that he had adopted uh, to try and control his own heart health. Um, you know, so that, that's it. But the news really ends up being a big driver. When you're doing a docu-series or a series of, of you know, longer-form things, sometimes you have the, the, the luxury of being able to look into things that are totally totally enterprise stories right. they don't necessarily have any particular news value in the current news cycle but they're so interesting we think they're so relevant that they're going to make some sort of impact on people's lives that we still do it and, right. uh, and so those are the two big ways the news is the big tip of the spear but the idea of being able to do enterprise reporting about things we find interesting is um is also something that we do quite right. a bit
1: so what was the thought process that went into the newest series, Chasing Life, where you traips all over the globe trying yeah. to unlock the secrets of health and longevity? You, you should you would love going on these trips. I, think <laughs> I would. would. Yeah, I'm jealous. I
0: know it's 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 wild. It's 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 a lot of fun. It's it's really super interesting, but the but the basic thought process was. Um, it was very simple in a way. Um, I love our healthcare system in this country. I'm a, I'm a member of it. I practice in it, but I also recognize that uh, you know we spend three and a half trillion dollars on healthcare, and we don't get in return what we should for that. Uh-huh. We 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 have dropping life expectancy three years in a row. We're 23rd in the world with with regard to life expectancy, behind Cyprus and Chile and Costa Rica. They're all ahead of us. Uh, we're expected to drop even further over the next 20 years. So there must be places around the world where people are living happier, healthier, better lives than we are. And I wanna know what they're doing. I wanna know how they're doing it and to understand what really works, uh, you know, prove it and, yeah. and bring those stories back to, to the viewers. That was, that was it. I think you know, we live in a really global world now I think when I first started practicing medicine the idea of you know some far eastern tradition well that's 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 something fringe and crazy and acupuncture and massage and all that and now we have real data behind these things. Well there's all sorts of thousands of practices like this around the world that we could learn from that are easily incorporated into our lives and we could benefit.
1: Yeah. Well it's exciting you go to India, you go to Japan, Bolivia, uh Turkey, Turkey yeah, You've got all these cool Norway. places. Yeah. Yeah. It's,
0: yeah, I mean, it was it was it was amazing. Yeah, you know, I got to live in the middle of the Amazon rainforest with an indigenous tribe in Bolivia. I spent time in mainland Japan, the most stressed country in the world, but also Okinawa, where people live over 100 more mm-hmm. than other places. Italy, you know, it's just a healthy country. Right despite their, their, their love of food and, and alcohol and all that sort of stuff, how do they stay so healthy? I, you know, it, was, it, was, it was an amazing experience for me. I would have done it if I didn't, you know even if I didn't have a series to produce, I would have still done these trips just to
1: learn. Yeah, and what's interesting is that so many of these kind of quote-unquote secrets are, you said it last night, they're like, well, it's kind of common sense and it's kind of obvious. Like they're just living more in alignment with the natural rhythms of of the earth and the planet. And they're in environments that are conducive to community and eating well and sleep and yeah. a reduction in stress and all of these things that we have to combat our environment to master. I, that, that That was probably the most surprising thing to me is like, even when we were
0: writing, you know, and starting to tell the stories, I thought to myself several times, you know, This is gonna make sense to people, right? Because this is so obvious, some of this is so obvious that we live the way humans should live. We move the way humans should move. We fuel our bodies the way humans, for most of our existence on this earth, have fueled their bodies. That's the way we evolve. Those Mm -hmm. are the receptors in our body. That's how we were designed. Uh, it, It sounded so obvious sometimes, and yet I would say these things and people would say, really? wow, that's amazing, I would have never thought that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you, you, you should have thought that because uh-huh. you know we are but the blink of an eye in our human existence and it doesn't take much research to think about how we evolved and why we evolved the way that we do. I mean, even going back to the cannabis thing, we have cannabis receptors in our body. Why are they there? How did we interact with our environment in a way that would have evolved us to have cannabis receptors in our body? What do they do? How do we stimulate them? you know um, and, there, and there's there's countless examples like that. So I, I, I got in some ways to tell people something that was so basic and so fundamental, but needs constant
1: reminding. yeah,
0: and profound. yeah profound. And, and 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 profound. I mean, I, I, I love the discussion around it because I feel like it's totally defensible. like I could, whatever we're talking about, I can explain really well. Not in terms of just how it works, why it works, but the fact that this is this is the way it should work. This is how we humans evolved, and it it feels big. If feel, you know, I feel humbled by
1: it in some ways. Yeah. Well, my friend, you have a heart out, and I'm going to have to let you go. Um, before I do that, if you can indulge me with one last question, do we have time? Of course. Quick. Yes. Um, a rich roll. <laughs> Healthiest uh, man in the world. This no, is. I, man I've in the asked world. this question to a number of doctors that have been on the program. Um, was that the question? on and, that yellow uh, piece of paper. No, this is this is saying that you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to go. Do this all day. Um, uh, if you if you suddenly became Surgeon General of the United States, which was actually a very real possibility for you, yeah. you were very close. Even Obama wanted you to become the Surgeon General. You ended up. Um, declining that amazing opportunity. But had you taken advantage of that or should that ever become your reality in the future, what would be the first order of business? Mm. I know it's a two-hour answer (sighs) to that,
0: but there's so many there's so many big important issues i think that uh, you know we're dealing with uh, in this country and i think you know mo- most of the diseases uh, that people are taking care of in hospitals are totally preventable due to lifestyle issues and and the types of foods that we eat i would certainly work on uh, our food policy which i think would change a lot of uh, the way that we look at medicine and health and wellness overall i would um, really uh, Beat the drum on our energy policy and its impact on human health. Some of the the regulatory or deregulatory policies mm-hmm. that are happening now are frightening and and totally unnecessary and will have a long-term impact on human health. Those things, the opioid crisis. There's all these things that you know I'd want to dig into. But I'll tell you one thing that has surprised me and that I've learned, and that is the 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 real toxic impact of, of social isolation um, on our on our emotional health, our, our our mental health, and I think in, in terms of our outlook on the world. I mean, we are dying in this country, deaths of desperation, higher than mm-hmm. any other developed country in the world. Uh, self-inflicted deaths, essentially. Suicide, overdose, liver cirrhosis due to alcoholism. and And I think a lot of it has to do with this sort of psychic stress that we're dealing with in this country. And I think social isolation, loneliness, lack of community, lack of social fabric is a, is a big part of that. And I, and I always, I hesitate a little bit when I say this because I know it sounds sort of hard to define around the edges, fuzzy, like what does that mean exactly? How would you invest in, in creating a social fabric? Well, I have all sorts of ideas on that, but one thing I would start off by saying is that most countries around the world do invest hef- heavily in social fabric, making people feel like they have a true safety net, that they're not forgotten, that they're a part of something larger than themselves. And I think the impact on physical health is something that we are, have learned so much about. When you live a life where you feel some sort of predictability, some sort of security, everything else follows from that. Yeah. Like the bigger problems, mm-hmm. we'll, figure, we'll figure out the, the, the big ones that we're talking about. But you wanna treat the root cause versus just the symptoms. That's one that I would focus on for our generation and, and certainly for the next
1: generation as well. Yeah, that's a solid answer, my friend. All right. All right. That's good. I, got, I have to a, release you to your life. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I just want to, again, acknowledge you for the amazing work uh, that you do. Um, you're an inspiration uh, to not only me, but millions of people all over the world. And, uh, uh, you know, I just love watching your career from afar. And it's an honor you. and a privilege to, to, to know you and to. Um, talk with you here today. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Love you, brother. All thank right. You. Love you too. Uh, Chasing life on CNN. Yeah. What's next? Let's chase life. Yeah. Let's do all it. right. Let's do it. <laughs> Come back and talk to me again, please. Okay. All right. You got it. Peace. let All right. What'd you guys think? I think we can all agree that Sanjay is the best. He's super cool. Um, but I think I'm referring more to how I tried to <laughs> like wrap the whole thing up gracefully oh, what I could have done with another hour. But hey, I did my best. And again, Sanjay was amazing. So please let Sanjay know what uh, you thought of today's conversation. You can hit him up on Instagram or Twitter at Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And don't forget to check out the CNN original series, Chasing Life with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Set your DVR to record it. If you are struggling with your diet, if you are really desiring of mastering your plate, but feel like, You don't really know what to do in the kitchen or you don't have the skills or the time. I cannot tell you how much I think our Plant Power Meal Planner can help you. Uh, We basically created this product to solve a very basic problem. How do you make nutritious, delicious eating convenient? And I think we did that. And I'm really proud of this product. It's helping a lot of people out there. To check it out, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website. And there you will get access to thousands of plant-based recipes that are delicious, easy to prepare, and completely customized based on your personal preferences. You get unlimited grocery lists, you get grocery delivery integrated into the product in most metropolitan areas, and you get access to an incredibly experienced team of nutrition coaches who are available to you seven days a week to answer all your questions. And you get all of this for just a dollar ninety a week, basically nothing, literally a cup of coffee. So again, to learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on meal planner on the top menu on my website. If you would like to support the work we do here on the podcast, I would appreciate that. And there's a couple simple ways to do it. Just tell your friends about the show or your favorite episode. It's that one-on-one communication that I think really Uh, is the key. So that's my favorite way for you to support the show. Uh, Share it on social media. Take a screen grab or talk about your favorite conversation. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, which is important. Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to the show. Uh, Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I do want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. I do not do this alone. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music, all kinds of other behind-the-scenes stuff. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing today's show. Jessica Miranda for graphics that I share on social media and on the website. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music, as always, by Analemma. Appreciate the love you guys. I'll see you back here. In a couple days with an amazing conversation that I've been looking forward to for a very long time with author, professor, Cal Newport. It's all about digital minimalism. Until then, chase your life, people. Get after it. You only have the now. All right, peace, plants, namaste.